Welcome to Iron Rhetoric with your intrepid host, Pastor Brett McAtee. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown, standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Good evening. And I always say good evening because it's evening usually when we do this, but you could be listening to this in the morning and you could be listening to this in the afternoon. So wherever you're at, whatever time of day it is, thank you for tuning in. I know there's a lot of other smarter people out there that you could be tuning into and profiting from. And it is my hope and my prayer that I'm not wasting your time. I'm here with Matt Smith. We need to be thankful to Matt and we are because this couldn't be happening, these podcasts. Couldn't be happening because uh, I wouldn't take the time to learn everything that he knows on the technology side of things. And so if he wasn't here to do that, these wouldn't um, be being done. So here we are on Iron Rhetoric yet again. And I had a request from my daughter up there in uh, Lufton, Michigan, where only the uh, the deer, there are more deer than people, I think. I was going to say only the deer live. There are some people up there. Um, but it's it's pretty wooded. Anyway, she had a friend um, who was struggling with this idea of Israel and the church and the relationship between the two. And we're going to talk about that tonight because really it's a, a constant subject that's brought up and it's even more on our minds in light of what's happened, started back in October in, in Israel and with the... Uh, Hamas and the Palestinians over there, and then you have the whole idea that comes bubbling up whenever this happens that, well, Israel are the people of God, and we dare not touch Israel, or God will, will crash down on us and destroy America. And that so that touches what we're looking at tonight, and we'll get to that, I think, eventually. Uh, the, the $10 word for what we're talking about, and you can put this in your theological dictionary, and we, know, we make no apologies here for having $10 words. Uh, Christianity has its own language, has its own vocabulary. And we really, if we're going to be Christians, we really should be familiar uh, with, that, with that vocabulary. And indeed, I would say that's, that's part of our sanctification, to become more and more familiar with it. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, 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 it's okay. It's a learning curve, right? It's a learning process. But... The $10 word here for what we're looking at tonight is supersessionism. Supersessionism, kind of like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Anyway, Even though the one, sound of it is something quite yeah. atrocious. But this one isn't quite as um, intimidating as Mary Poppins. This is called supersessionism, and, and a brief definition here is supersessionism is the conviction or belief uh, not merely that Judaism or the Jewish people have been supplanted by Christianity or the church, but that the covenant between God and national Israel as his chosen people has been abrogated. Uh, a hard supersessionist would then say um, national Israel as it exists today in the Middle East, when you look at that reality, you're, not, you're, no, you're no longer looking at um, God's chosen people. And already I can hear the shrieks reverberating back at me. Um, because this has been so ground into our heads for nine to almost 200 years now from the dispensational camp in America that it seems like um, 
abject heresy to even even say it. So supersessionism maintains that the Jews are no longer considered to be God's chosen people in any sense, um, at least in any national sense. Now, this understanding is is also generally termed replacement theology, and I'll probably be using that phrase more than supersessionism just because it's easier. Um, it's called replacement theology, sometimes also called um, fulfillment theology. And when it's called replacement theology, often that's uh, hurled at us that are supersessionists as a way of epithet or, or of insult. Um, so to be called somebody who practices replacement theology is usually not a compliment. And, <coughs> and actually the irony here is that those who accuse us of replacement theology are instead the ones who really are guilty of practicing replacement theology because they've replaced the people of God, that is the church, um, with Christ-hating Jewish nationalism. Uh, and so really that's what's being replaced as we look at it. But you know the old, um, the old idea, you always accuse somebody of what you're guilty of yourself. So there is a distinction between the supersessionist and the non-supersessionist. Um, that distinction is that the consistent non-supersessionist believe that God has two plans for salvation. Now remember I said the consistent. There's a lot of inconsistent ones out there. I'm talking about the ones that are consistent. Um, they believe that God has two plans of salvation, uh, one for Israel and one for the church. In this thinking, Israel is God's earthly people while the church is God's heavenly people. So you can imagine two parallel lines, one parallel line um, over the uh, second parallel line, and they never intersect, and they never uh, meet. And God has a plan for the Jewish people and because they're the earthly people of God, and God has a plan for the heavenly people, that is the church. When I think about consistent dispensationalists, I think about those guys out there like uh, Hagee. His first name is John, I think. Yep, John yeah. Hagee. Uh, John Hagee, um, who has said really, you know, like you don't even need, even need to give the gospel to uh, to Jews because God has his own unique plan for them. Most uh, non-supersessionists are not that extreme. They don't end up being that consistent. Although I do think, in my with my convictions, I do think Hagee is a consistent expression of non-supersessionism. Um, whereas the supersessionists, of course, those who uh, believe that Israel has um, has now ended for the sake of the church, people who believe that uh, believe that God is done with national Israel in terms of redemptive uniqueness. Some passages we might look at to suggest that God is done uh, with Israel as being the chosen people. Um, I'm going to refer to these. I'll read some of the, the passage. The parable of the tenants. Jesus tells this parable about the landowner of a vineyard. He planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. I'm reading from Matthew 21 here. He rents the vineyard to some farmers and moves to another place. When the harvest time approaches, he sends his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Well, we understand the, the vineyard to be the people of God. 
you understand the tenants to be um, the Jews. Um, but in this parable, what the tenants do is they seize the servants, they beat one, kill another, and stone a third. Um, and other tenants are sent, and they're all treated the same way. Finally, the owner of the vineyard sends his son, of course, a reference to Christ. Um, they'll respect my son, the owner says. But when the tenants saw the son to each other, they said, this is the heir. Let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him a share of the crop at harvest time. <clears throat> and so we understand that those wretches that are going to come to a wretched end, that have come to a wretched end, um, refers to Israel and God has rented the vineyard to other tenants. Those other tenants are the church. Now, we want to make something painfully and extraordinarily clear here. We're talking about national Israel. We're saying that God is done with national Israel in terms of redemptive dealings. We're not saying that those that are Jewish, however that might be defined, can't become Christians. We're merely saying that in terms of a significance as applied to national Israel, um, they were the tenants that killed the son and God brought them to a wretched end. And so redemptively speaking, God is done with Israel and there is no sense that national Israel are the chosen people of God. We go on. Um, there's another parable. And this is um, from Luke chapter 13. A certain man had a fig tree. He planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Verse 7, at this point, then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I've been coming, seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down! Why cumbereth it the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let alone this year also until I dig around and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit well, if not, after that you can cut it down. So again, what's envisioned here is um, national Israel being this fig tree that's been given a space of time and it did not bear fruit and so it was cut down. It was removed in terms of God, of any redemptive agency that God had uh, for Israel. And that redemptive agency is now located in the church Another passage in Matthew 22. Um, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Uh, of course, um, that is referring, we would say, to uh, national Israel. Again, he sent other servants saying to those who are, to tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my ox and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready to come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went off to one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Of course, we see the, a, a theme here. The king was angry, and he sent his troop and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And so he eliminated them, which we believe would point, be a veiled point to what happened in, in AD 70. And then the parable goes on from there. It talks about um, the wedding feast being ready. And the responsibility of the servants have to go to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you find, which we would see as 
being indicative of, of Gentiles coming in. And those servants went onto the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. <coughs> of course, some of those guests aren't found in the proper wedding garments, and we would, we would see that as being a reference to being clothed with Christ. They're not seen with the proper uh, garments. They're in the visible church, but they don't have the essence. They're not in the invisible church, and so they're, they're cast out. So these are all scripture passages that we would see point to the reality that God has done with national Israel, and he has now handed off those blessings to another institution, another uh, people, and that people is the church. We see this point of that in, in Acts 15, I would say, where we find, I believe, what to be a supersessionist teaching. There in Acts 15, James is speaking at the Jerusalem Council, and he says, Peter has declared how God has first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And, of course, you remember how even that much is controversial in the early church um, because even in the early church there was resistance to the idea of Gentiles coming in. But here is James uh, approving of, of Peter, uh, talking about how the Gentiles are being taken out from their people as a people for his name. And then James goes on to say, this agrees with the words of the prophets. He says prophets, plural, but then he quotes from, from the book of Amos there in Acts 15. He quotes from Amos chapter 9. And in Acts 15, he quotes, after this I will return. And there are some slight differences between um, the actual quote in Amos and what James says here. But what he gives us a quote is, after this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Okay, the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, refers to um, the Jews. Um, I will build its ruins and I'll set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who call by my name, saith the Lord who does all these things. And so David's tent or tabernacle, either word is fine, has fallen down. And God is going to rebuild it, but he's going to rebuild it how? By the bringing in of the Gentiles. The bringing in of the Gentiles is the church that Jesus promised to build. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So the tabernacle is broken down, Israel's broken down, and God is refurbishing and rebuilding it by the influx of the Gentiles and the creation of a church, which is, we might say, the new Israel of God. And so we would say there that this is an indication that God, again, is done with who? He's done with national Israel as a redemptive agent uh, for his program and his plan uh, to men. The main point of the quotation as made by James from Amos was to show that according to the prophets, it was contemplated that Gentiles should be introduced to the former privileges of Israel. Uh, heavy emphasis is on the word former. They're the former privileges of Israel. And why are they former? Because Israel treated their Messiah with such contempt and disregard. And so God divorced them. And we see that in Jesus' cursing of the fig tree. A fig tree there is representative of Israel. And Jesus says, may you never produce fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withers. And so what we see there, the supersessionist claims, 
what we see there is God cursing Israel and promising that as a nation, as a people, they would never produce fruit again. Um, and that would be consistent with Israel's own blood oaths that they took upon themselves when Christ was crucified. When Israel said, may his blood be upon us and our children or us and our seed. This was a maledictory oath that they called upon themselves. And that maledictory oath came to pass uh, when Jesus cursed the fig tree. And then uh, divorce papers were served in AD 70. The supersessionists, the preterist supersessionists or partial preterists would say, I would say, the divorce papers were served in AD 70 Christ comes and bring in his judgment coming. He brings judgment upon Jerusalem as the armies of Rome, the armies of Titus, cover and obliterate and destroy Jerusalem. And at that point, the divorce papers are served and God is done with national Israel uh, in terms of its redemptive agency. Now, again, I want to go out of my way to emphasize that uh, Jewish people can be saved, are brought into the church, but they're brought into the church not in conjunction with who they are as Jews, but as they as they drop that religious Jewish identity and come in and bow to Jesus Christ. Um, I wanted to spend some time now bringing this out even more. What I'm bringing out is this idea that God is done with national Israel, and the church is now the people of God. And I'd like to say what I'm going to give now is from my genius. It isn't. I'm taking uh, from a book called The Church is Israel Now by Charles D. Proven, and I'm looking at some of that and drawing out from that. Um, I should say, just as an aside, there isn't probably much of anything that you hear on Iron Rhetoric that is from my genius. I've made it my goal in life never to say anything original. Uh, it's not a good thing when after you preach, somebody who's been in the church 40 or 50 years comes up and says, well, that was fine, young man. I've never heard that before. Um, that should make any minister cringe. Um, and so it's the same with Iron Rhetoric. I'm not trying to be novel. I'm not trying to come up with innovative thoughts like uh, David Van Drunen when he takes the Noahic covenant as being completely a common grace covenant. I'm not trying to be innovative or original. God forbid, and I mean that literally, God forbid originality. Um, like Doug Wilson, who's all of a sudden now has come up with this thing called a covenant with Hagar, um, which we may talk about later. Um, so anything you hear on Iron Reddick, Iron Rhetoric, any podcast, you know, if you're to press me, I'm going to probably going to say, well, you need to go read, and I'll give you a, a book or several book titles um, because there's, I'm not original, and I'm not shy to admit it. So anyway, in order to, to demonstrate <coughs> that the church is, is Israel now, that God is done with Israel, we look at this book by uh, Proven, which I would, I would recommend if you can get a, ha a copy of this. Um, and you'll have to spend your time looking up these passages I'm going to be citing because we're not going to read all of them. Um, but what we're looking at now is Old Testament titles and attributes of Israel, which are in the New Testament referred not to Israel but to the Christian church. And so one of these titles 
and attributes is beloved of God. In Exodus 15.13 and Deuteronomy 33.3 and Ezra 3.11, Israel is called the beloved of God. However, disobedient Israel is not beloved of God according to Leviticus 26, 28 and 30, Jeremiah 12, 8, Jeremiah 16, 5, Hosea 9, 15, and Amos 9, 7. But, and there are other passages here, but I'm not going to overwhelm you. But when you get to the New Testament, now it's Christians who are called beloved of God. And so the point here is that the title that was once placed on Israel is now placed on Christians or the church. And we see that in Romans 9.25, Ephesians 5.1, Colossians 3.12, and 1 John 3.1. In the Old Testament, the Israelites are the children of God. We see that in passages like Exodus 4.22, Deuteronomy 14.1, Isaiah 1. 2 and 4, Isaiah 63, 8. And elsewhere, though, disobedient Israelites are not the children of God. We see that in John 8, 39, 42, and 44, and Deuteronomy 32, 5. However, the Christians are then now in the New Testament called the children of God. John 1, 12, John 11, 52, Romans 8, 14, and 16, Galatians 3, 26, and on and on. And I think I, after having done this now just a little bit on, on two titles, I think I'm just going to tell you that if you're interested in this, I'm going to put it on Iron Ink. And you can start, you can just look at Iron Ink and, and see for yourself how the attributes that were affixed to Israel in the Old Testament are now affixed to the church in the New Testament. And so what's clearly being communicated in the doing of that is that the now the church is now to God in this messianic age, in this kingdom age, what Israel was to God before the coming of Christ. And so that again communicates that God is redemptively speaking, is done with national Israel. They have no unique or special place now. They have rejected their Messiah. God divorced them um, in divorce papers in AD 70 with the coming of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. And now the apple of God's eye is not national Israel, but the church. It is the visible church that is the apple of God's eye. And especially the invisible church within the visible church. And so what I have here from Proven, I was going to spend time on. Um, again, I'm going to put it on Iron Ink. It's, there's a lot of material here. And, and honestly, I don't know how anybody could look at all this material that Proven provides and still want to be telling me or insisting that somehow I'm an antichrist. And yes, it can get the language can get that salty uh, merely because I insist that God is done with national Israel. Now I should say here, um, if I want to be completely honest and, as they say, put all my cards on the table, um, that the majority reading uh, in, of, among Reformed interpreters has always been that God is still going, is still in the future going to do something with Israel. Uh, and usually that's taken from Romans 11. 
And I don't want to get into Romans 11 tonight, although I might do another podcast in order to deal with Romans 11. But uh, the majority report among the Reformed has been that Romans 11 teaches that God is still going to do some kind of future work with Israel. Now, I, I, I do not believe that. I take the minority report uh, when it comes. I think that what's being spoken about in Romans 11 was perhaps future to them, but is past to us. That's already been fulfilled. Um, but I want to be honest in saying that in letting you know that my conviction that God has done completely with national Israel in terms of his redemptive agency, that my position is a minority position among the Reformed, and the majority position is that, well, God is done with um, national Israel now as national Israel, but in some future time, according to the majority Reformed view, God is still going to deal uh, with Israel and, and bring Israel into the fold. So that's me being honest about that, and I'll have more to say about Romans 11 in a future podcast, maybe even the next one. Um, well, the next one and I'm doing, I'm what I'm doing now is going to take several parts, I'm sure. So what we've proven so far um, by what we've said by, by way of Acts 15, but by what you're going to see on Iron Inc., from all these quotes, uh, texts that talk about Israel, or ch- the church being the now Israel of God, uh, what we've proven here is that the church is is now what Israel was in the Old Testament. Uh, Ephesians 2 also is a key text um, that brings all this together. Uh, so we would say that if the church is Israel now, the next point I want to make, if the church is Israel now, then whatever's going on over in the Middle East, uh, Palestine, is no more significant, redemptively speaking, than what's going on in Peru or Mongolia or Japan or uh, Zimbabwe, which is another way of saying that as it pertains to special revelation, God did not establish what happened in 1948. He did not establish the state of Israel and Palestine. Now, he did that, you could say, by his overall providence, and you would say, I would say that, um, but there's nothing in the Scriptures that would indicate that what happened in 1948 was predictive prophecy. Um, Yes, I know that tons of people speak to the contrary, but that's a different model. That's a different um, theology than than what Reformed people hold to. And so, again, to be clear here, yes, according to God's uh, decreed will or ordained will, what happened in 1948 obviously was his will. But according to what we see in the Scripture in terms of by his will of precept, there's nothing that indicates that that was going to happen or that needed to happen or that God wanted that to happen according to his revealed will. Which is another way of saying that as it pertains to special revelation, God did not establish the state of Israel in Palestine. And despite nine to 200 years of dispensationalism, the pagan Jewish nation state of Israel is, is not populated by God's chosen people in any sense. Uh, I quote here Dr. Ken Gentry from a lecture that he did at a Ligonier conference to undergird um, what I'm saying here to see, so hopefully that you'll see I'm not out on a limb alone. Um, 
you can hate Dr. Gentry along with me as after you hear this quote. Uh, this quote finds Gentry saying, the book of Revelation is teaching us, I believe, that God is divorcing Israel as a special beloved people because they have committed a final transgression against him that is so horrible. He's divorced her. He's capitally punished her. And he has taken a new bride and marries the church coming down from above. I believe that Israel as a racial people has significance, but I don't believe that as a national entity there is any significance to them. Israel as a racial people was judged, and their national claim to fame, that is, their national standing with God, has been destroyed. He's taken a new bride, the church. But lo and behold, by the grace of God, all who profess the name of Christ can enter the church as Christians, not as Jews. The old Israel, the political structure that God used in the Old Testament to secure his word and his will in the world has been done away with. Unquote. Right? So you can see here that I'm not alone in, in this kind of conviction. Um, I am a, a partial preterist, and this is what you're getting tonight, today, whenever you're listening, um, is something that's not atypical for a partial preterist uh, to believe. Um, yes, it is distinct from the environs that we live in because you have to understand that it's still the case um, despite losing the muscularity that it once had, that dispensational, dispensationalism remains the 800-pound gorilla um, in the land. It's not what it was even when I was in college and seminary, but it's still the majority voice. And I'm giving a, a voice that's contrary to that. So all this is to say again that biblically speaking we have no more obligation to what is called Israel today than we have to Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates. Now, we may have more obligation to them just as a matter of realpolitik, that is to say international politics. Um, we, might, we might believe, wrongly or rightly, we might believe that it's in our best national interest to support Israel over, over and above Muslims or Arabs, but we have no, no biblical grounds in order to come to that conclusion. It's not the case that God's going to punish us or punish America if we suddenly decided that supporting Israel was not in our best interest. And I know it's shocking to say, um, but even if, if Israel were to disappear tomorrow, I'm not advocating that. I'm just giving a hypothetical. If they were to disappear tomorrow, that would be irrelevant uh, to God's redemptive clock. Um, and again, that was probably a minority statement even in the Reformed world. Um, let's tease this out just a little bit now in a slightly different direction. Um, Doug Wilson recently has, has advocated for what he calls soft supersessionism which he distinguishes obviously from hard supersessionism, which I've communicated this evening. And uh, on the other extreme, uh, no supersessionism at all. And that's, to be honest, that's kind of like Doug. He's always trying to split the middle on things. At least that's been my experience. If there was fire and ice, Doug would try to give us 
uh, Feiss or I Iers or something something like that. Um, and so he tries to do that. Um, he's trying to split the middle between a hard supersessionism and uh, kind of this uh, dispensationalism mindset. And he comes up with what he calls soft supersessionism. And the unique um, the unique aspect of that is that he creates this thing called a covenant with Hagar. <clears throat> and we're quoting here from uh, a recent book he's published, um, something with the word honey in it. can't remember the title. Um, he says, quote, a covenant is a solemn bond sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. And that's uh, that's a good brief definition of, of a covenant. You could expand on it easily, but there's no quibbles there. He goes on to say this is the structure of all covenants, including the covenants that bind people in their unbelief. And now we're, we're getting on interesting ground. Then he says the Apostle Paul teaches that unbelieving Jews are in covenant with Hagar, not Sarah. Well, it's not exactly the, the language that's used there in Galatians 4.25. So we quote here from Galatians. Um, Tell me who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise, which things are symbolic. So these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which give birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now is and is in bondage with their children. But the Jer- Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. All right. So um, Doug says the Apostle Paul teaches that unbelieving Jews are in covenant with Hagar, not Sarah, but the covenant he's referring to is the Sinai covenant. Uh, and then he goes on to say that whenever Moses read a veil lies over their hearts from first, second Corinthians. Um, I would say, first of all, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with confessions and catechisms. And I can't think of one that speaks of this covenant with Hagar um, that Doug is talking about. I know it's not in the three forms of unity and I know it's not in the Westminster confession. Um, they will talk about um, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Um, and they'll talk about the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, and other other sub-covenants, but nothing about the Hagar that I know of. And I really am saying um, this, that maybe, maybe I'm missing something here. Uh, indeed, I, I, I can't think of one Reformed theologian in history who's spoken in such a way suggests that people only by way of this Hagar covenant, apart from any blood considerations, are in covenant with God. Now, I don't pretend to know all the Reformed theologians who've ever spoke or written, but if anyone in Reformed history has spoken of unbelieving Jews being in a Hagarian covenant, could someone please send me the source and send me what what they wrote about it? Um, because, again, it, it just... It, it's an odd way to, to think, in, in my estimation. Secondly, we'd have to uh, agree with a chap named Gabe Harder who, who wrote something on um, Andrew Torva's platform, Gab. And uh, 
which I thought was a really good piece. If you can find it, I would recommend it. I don't remember the title of it right now. But um, we agree with Harder that what Wilson has offered here as a covenant with Hagar is a sheer non sequitur. Um, aside from begging the question and assuming Wilson's covenant with Hagar, Harder goes on to say, what biblical covenant fits this description that Doug gives? Even if we could conceive of such a covenant, what would it mean for a covenant that binds its members in unbelief to have attendant blessings? Blessings for what? What does covenant keeping look like in such a covenant? And in that segment there, that brief segment I was quoting from Gabe Harder in his, in his column, and we ask the same thing. Right? If, it's, if this covenant with Hagar is going to have blessings, how are these blessings attained? How are they kept, especially when they are a covenant of, of, of death? Um, it's binding them in unbelief and it's going to have blessings? So the covenant that's being spoken of, of there in Galatians, I believe, is, is a covenant of works. Um, it was the Jews at Mount Sinai taking up God's covenant apart from Christ and believing that they could keep the covenant on their own terms by their own power and not seeing the graciousness of God's covenant. It was taking God's covenant there at Sinai uncovenantally. And so what was intended as part of the covenant of grace, they changed and warped into a covenant of works um, because of they wrenched it away from the context of grace. So I, without more information on this brand new covenant of Hagar that as far as I know, nobody ever talked about, uh, we're having major problems here on the, with this soft supersessionism. And that's the connection here with this whole podcast. Uh, we talked about, started talking about supersessionism and now we've gotten to Doug Wilson uh, who's trying to give us a soft supersessionism um, because, well, who knows what the motives are? I don't know the motives. I should say that up front. Um, but I, but from where I'm standing, it looks like hard supersessionism is too mean and too anti-Semitic, so-called. And so we don't want to be mean or, or anti-Semitic, so we'll come up with this kinder, gentler version of supersessionism um, that will not be as offensive uh, to those who are in covenant with Hagar. Um, obviously, you can't read motives. Um, so all I can say is that what's what it looks like from afar. Um, I'd be glad to, to know I'm wrong. Um, even if that's not the motive, even if that's not the intent, even if the intent is pure as the wind driven snow, uh, one can certainly look at that and say, well, there's, there's more wiggle room there uh, for um, being nicer and kinder uh, to Jewish people. Of course, it still requires that they bow to Christ. It still requires that they forsake uh, their previous Jewish religion. And so that's reality. But I just don't think there's any, um, 
any sense to it. And as I've said already a couple of times in the podcast, it's, it's a, it's a queer thing to come up with something that nobody's ever thought of before. Um, yes. Scripture still has new light to break forth from it. And this may be crafted in such a way where Brett comes along and says, yeah, you know what? That makes sense. I guess I'll go with it. Um, but until it's fleshed out and given meat, um, it, 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 it's, it, it's damn strange. And I think Gabe Harder is on to something in what he's written. So that's the beginning of looking at supersessionism between the podcast and the notes that you're going to be able to find on Iron Inc. Um, you'll be able to trace it out for yourself by looking at the scriptures, all the scriptures that are going to be provided. And so I trust that my daughter and her friend will be able to see um, that supersessionism is biblical. Uh, God is done with Old Testament national Israel. Uh, the church is now the apple of his eye. The churches are now the people of God. The church is now the one who is a, a royal priesthood, um, the temple of God that God is fitting. And we long for all people, including those that follow the Talmud, we long for them to come to know Christ and the joy of being grafted into the body of Christ. So that's what we have for this evening. We thank you, Father. Thank you for uh, coming along for the ride. And Matt and I both say to you, God bless and good night. Thank you for joining us this week. Look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. And while you're there, leave us a positive five-star review. Don't you know she could bring a good feeling ain't had in such a long time? Save my life, I'm going down.